Hey everyone, Robert Polly here with the 7th Avenue Project, wherein today we wade into an old controversy, 150 plus years old. I'm talking about the case of John Brown, who's been called a hero, a freedom fighter, and even a saint, but also a fanatic, madman, murderer, and terrorist, depending on who you listen to. What he did to accrue all those labels is to take up arms against slavery before it was the fashionable thing to do. At least that's one way of looking at it. We'll be considering a variety of perspectives today. First, though, a few facts about the event for which John Brown is most famous. The bloody raid that he led on Harper's Ferry, Virginia in 1859. His intention was to start a slave revolt, but things didn't go as planned. Half of his small raiding party were killed in the attempt, and many of the survivors, including John Brown himself, were captured, tried, and eventually hung at the gallows. But though the attack failed in the short term, it did manage to raise tensions between the North and the South to near the boiling point. And things did boil over just a year and a half later when the Civil War broke out. We're going to hear more about the raid and John Brown's life in just a moment from Tony Horwitz, the Pulitzer Prize-winning writer who's got a new book out about John Brown. But before we get to that, I wanted to start out here with a conversation I had with my friend Andrea. She's black, I'm white, and we often find ourselves talking about race in America, past, present, and future. And this time around, the subject was John Brown. Andrea, what was your first exposure to John Brown? Do you remember? Yeah, my first exposure would have been fifth or sixth grade during a history class, looking at a textbook and seeing that picture, the famous, it's a painting of John Brown in bleeding Kansas, and he looks larger than life. Um, big, crazy-looking eyes, white hair. Um, to me, the picture, he looks like Charlton Heston and the Ten Commandments when he comes down off the mountain with the white hair. And that's my first memory of him. Yeah, yeah, I, I know the painting you're talking about. Um, and he does look either biblical or just nuts, uh, one or the other. Yeah. This is bleeding Kansas, you say. This is when they were fighting over whether uh, Kansas, which was a territory at this time prior to the Civil War, would become... A slaveholding state would enter the Union as a slaveholding state or as a as a non-slaveholding state. So it was a battleground at the time. Right. And this painting of John Brown leading the crusade against slavery. Right. That's my first image of him. Yeah. And what did, what did you think? Um, I remember immediately thinking he's a hero uh, because he was on the right side of the issue. I, you know, I don't remember, obviously, the exact caption under the picture, but I'm sure it was something along the lines of John Brown, who violently... Uh, fought against slavery. And um, that was about it. Not I, I definitely don't remember a whole lot of, you know, sentences, probably not even a paragraph about him or Harper's Ferry, other than just, a, you know, the note that this is what started the Civil War. So so you saw this painting and you thought, okay, this is this was a good guy. Yeah, I thought, you know, this was a good guy. Um, he was definitely probably the first white man in history that I, you know, could... Uh, directly identify with, he was willing to do some violence to end slavery. Mm. Yeah. Mm. So it's interesting because I was looking for good white guys also. And I too had uh, found out that Abraham Lincoln, even Abraham Lincoln, you know, when it came to issues of race, said things that. <laughs> yeah, that were, were disappointing. Extremely disappointing. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that at some point he said things about the inferiority of, of blacks that were pretty shocking to a kid who was raised on the idea that he was the great liberator. And uh, I had come to somehow think that all white people in that era were probably racist. So John Brown seemed like maybe an example of someone who, who was um, the exception. But then I had the impression that he was a little bloodthirsty because of some of the actions he was involved in, like a, a massacre, so-called massacre he was in, where he he and his men killed a bunch of guys in cold blood who were pro-slavery militants in, mm -hmm. in, in Kansas before the uh, Civil War. So I thought, you know, maybe he was crazy. And so he doesn't qualify either as the, the, the really, truly moral character I was looking for. Okay, yeah. yeah. So maybe he was just one of these guys who attaches himself to a cause because he's looking for something to kill for or looking for something to uh, go, go nuts over. That's interesting because, you know, I remember just getting the message loud and clear that he was on the right side and he was a lunatic or fanatic. I remember those words being used interchangeably, really. And so the question for me 
if not then, certainly the older I got was like, well, who, and I remember thinking it in this way, who dropped him on his head? Like, you know, what white person would willingly, you know, lay down his life uh, as well as kind of go down in history as this crazy person? I think what, what I wrestle with is that to say John Brown was right and he was a hero is really in the truest sense to say that the same actions in parallel circumstances today would also be okay. And it's to say that, for instance, when one of us is aware of what we believe is a, a real crime against humanity, an atrocity of some sort, and when society and when the law and other institutions aren't doing enough to stop it, that it's okay for us, that it's right for us, that we're called upon to get violent and oppose it by any means. And that might include killing people who got in the way, just as people died who got in the way, you know, uh, of the Harper's Ferry raid. And that's a tr that's, that for me is a very tough call. Some of those people who are in the way, some innocents are going to die by my hand if I take that course. You know, it, it all comes down to a very simple question. Do the ends justify the means? Maybe. I mean, see, that's the thing. I think that there are other questions. I think that that's one question. I think that the question for me is, what am I willing to die for? And what, if anything, am I willing to kill for? Mm -hmm. And I think that it's one of those questions that, because it's so difficult to answer, what we prefer is to come up with a simple rule that says, you know, and maybe this is what pacifists are saying is that, well, the the answer is I will not kill for anything. Which means, you know, if you're a true pacifist, it means you're willing to die for it. You're willing to die for it, but you're not willing to kill for anything. Mm -hmm. There is no such thing as a justifiable war. Include, you know, there were the pacifists who, in spite of what they knew were hap was happening to Jews, they did not feel that it was still justifiable to go to war. In World War II. In World War II, yeah. So I think... You know, John Brown's story and decisions just brings that question back up. You know, what are you willing to die for and what are you willing to kill for? So those are some of the issues that Andrea and I talked about. And uh, I got a chance to raise those questions again recently when I spoke to Tony Horwitz, the well-known journalist and history slash travel writer. His books include Baghdad Without a Map and Other Misadventures in Arabia, Confederates in the Attic, Dispatches from the Unfinished Civil War, and Blue Latitudes, Going Boldly Where Captain Cook Has Gone Before. His newest is Midnight Rising, John Brown and the Raid That Sparked the Civil War. Tony says that Americans have never come to agreement about John Brown. You know, he's possibly the most divisive figure in our history. And what interested me, I've spent a lot of time in Harper's Ferry, and I was there the other day talking to a park ranger who uh, teaches the school kids about Harper's Ferry. And at the end of the program, they always ask the kids to vote on, uh, you know, whether Brown was right or wrong to do what he did, and it almost always splits down the middle. And I think that's uh, true broadly. He really, uh, there's very little middle ground with John Brown. Yeah, it, it seems to me that American history has never digested him. If you, if you look him up, you, you just can't get a clear read from most sources. Well, I mean, he's a, he's a troubling, complicated figure. And I think in America particularly, we're not very good at uh, uh, sort of shades of gray or, or embracing the complexity. We like to sort of have heroes and villains. Mm -hmm. um, and in my view, he doesn't fit any of the sort of preconceived molds that he, people are always trying to fit him into. How did John Brown become an abolitionist, that is, a person who wanted to abolish slavery in the early part of the 19th century? Yeah, I don't think there was uh, any one thing. He was uh, strongly influenced uh, throughout his life by his father, who was a very uh, early abolitionist. I think that was one factor. Uh, I think his religious beliefs, he was a Calvinist, uh, sort of ever vigilant against sin, uh, both uh, personal and collective. 
and uh, slavery was was the great sin of the nation uh, at that time. Um, and I think it was also for him partly temperamental. Um, nothing galvanized Brown more uh, than passivity in the face of evil. Uh, he couldn't stand it when uh, there was sort of bullying by the South of the rest of the nation. Um, he wanted to punch back, and that's what he did uh, in Kansas and later at Harper's Ferry. As you make clear in your book, um, when you say bullying by the South, the South, uh, even though some people might have the idea that slavery was a slowly dying institution uh, by, say, the mid-1800s, in fact, um, politically, they were making gains. They had quite an influence over American policy, and uh, in areas where uh, new states were coming into being uh, or were planned, uh, the South was fighting fiercely to extend slavery into those areas. Exactly. Um, not only to the West, but uh, uh, they're urging um, uh, the nation to conquer Cuba and Central America so they will have uh, more lands to plant and enslave. I mean, the cotton economy is, isn't withering away in the 1850s. It's booming. Uh, it's, it's by far the nation's largest export, and slavery is really on the march. Uh, so I think, yes, I think many Americans today have a uh, sort of false, uh, gone-with-the-wind image of the pre-Civil War South as this uh, sort of doomed underdog. Uh, that wasn't at all the way it appeared to Americans uh, at the time. Wow. So the, the Southern strategy uh, has deep roots. Absolutely. <laughs> um, I mean, there are certain uh, parallels to today. You, you get this feeling from news reports and letters and diaries that uh, anti-slavery northerners in this era feel kind of beaten up and pushed around and bullied by these uh, southern-led extremists, you know? Uh, sort of, why is no one standing up to these thugs? And that's part of why Brown is so potent. He does. Do you try to put yourself back in that era when you, when you think about these uh, subjects and when you write about them? Well, absolutely, and, and particularly in, in this book, where I really wanted to keep it rooted in the past, uh, I wanted to, as much as possible, uh, create this world uh, as it was and as Americans saw it then, rather than us looking back at it. Um, you know, how did these events uh, affect them? And I really didn't want to sort of break the spell by, um, uh, you know, leaping forward uh, to the present, as I've often done in my earlier books. Well, well did you think about how it would have felt to, to have been alive then, let's say, witnessing slavery and, uh, and the forces that were pushing for even more slavery? Sure. I think you inevitably sort of think, uh, which side uh, would I have been on? But I think um, uh, the influence that sort of surprised me is that, uh, is Brown himself. I mean, uh, I have uh, all kinds of questions about him. Uh, uh, he is a troubling figure. Uh, but what's astonishing about him is that he really uh, emerges uh, as, a, and as an abolitionist in his mid-50s, uh, which was an advanced age in those days. Uh, they often called him the old man. And, you know, I'm in my 50s now. And, you know, it forces you to think about your own life uh, and what's possible. In that sense, it's, it's quite an inspiring story. Well, uh, we should say that he may have emerged as an activist abolitionist in his 50s, but at least from reading your account, it seems like he was always committed to the idea of total equality to a degree that seems completely modern. I mean, his views about race were, I mean, they were totally compatible with the, the way, you know, progressive people feel today. Yeah, he's plotting this and uh, for for decades. So uh, he doesn't emerge till his mid fifties, but he's he's clinging to this this mission he feels he has to uh, destroy slavery. And he is he's astonishingly progressive, uh, even for abolitionists who are a small minority in that day. He really lives up to his beliefs. Uh, he has black people living with him at various times. He lives with black people. He has blacks in his band when he raids Harper's Ferry. Uh, he really believes in this equality. He even has a uh, constitutional convention uh, in Canada in a community largely of fugitive slaves, and they nominate uh, for president a black man in 1858. This is uh, Brown's revolutionary government that he hopes to found in Virginia. Um, so anyone who's patting themselves on the back for having voted for Obama, uh, Brown would say <laughs> you're 150 years late to the party. Well, well how rare was a view like that. And when I say total equality, you, you, you just said he, he treated his black friends and colleagues as complete equals. He protested all forms of discrimination. I, I think you, you mentioned an incident where in a church that he attended, uh, black parishioners were forced to sit in the back and he refused to sit in the front and insisted that they take his place and he would right. go sit in the back. 
Um, how rare was that kind of um, uh, racial attitude? It was, it was very rare. I mean, uh, you know, most of the country, north and south, was just uh, outright, you know, racist by our lights. Um, but even abolitionists were often uh, quite condescending uh, towards blacks. They thought they were too docile uh, and inferior, really, to fight for their own freedom. And it was sort of, you know, leave it to us. Um, so they, uh, you know, they wanted to free slaves and sort of uh, loved black people in the abstract, uh, but they weren't, uh, uh, they weren't mingling with them very much. Uh, so Brown really is, uh, I think, quite remarkable uh, in that regard. Um, and even Abraham Lincoln, who's thought of as the great emancipator, uh, did not come round to completely opposing slavery until a little bit late in the game. I mean, he wasn't during much of his political career. He didn't want it to advance into the North, but he was not for challenging it in the places where it was already established. And even um, later on, you know, though against slavery, he certainly wasn't for total equality. Right, yeah, Lincoln uh, sort of comes in towards the, uh, the end of my story, and it's interesting to see him through the prism of, of John Brown. It, uh, Brown is almost a litmus test. He shows you where people stood at the time, because everybody speaks and writes about him. And Lincoln really comes out rather on the conservative end of the anti-slavery uh, spectrum. Uh, he's against it, and, and he's very much against its extension. Um, but he wants to uh, send uh, freed blacks to Africa or the Caribbean, because he believes they can't uh, live as equals to whites uh, in America. And he condemns Brown's raid. Uh, and he says, this is not what the Republican Party is about. We're not about violence. We're not about meddling with slavery in the South. Uh, we oppose its extension. Um, he ultimately comes around to Brown's point of view in the course of the Civil War. And that's uh, one of the many ironies of this uh, story. He, he ultimately fulfills Brown's mission. Well, I, I don't know if you have an opinion on what is probably still a very controversial point, but, you know, when uh, Lincoln issued the Emancipation Proclamation in, was it 1863? Yeah, it's official on January 1st, 1863. Right. So that's again, feels late in the game. It was well into the Civil War, uh, and a lot of people have said, well, this was partly to undermine the South militarily, to just create, you know, more resistance among the slaves in the South. Uh, it wasn't really uh, primarily motivated by goodwill toward the slaves themselves. Well, I think Lincoln in this uh, really reflected uh, white northern opinion. Um, early in the war, he's being urged by abolitionists to emancipate uh, slaves, and he says, no, it would be a John Brown raid on a massive scale, and he meant that in negative terms. He's uh, terrified of losing the support of the slaveholding border states, uh, that are crucial to the war effort. And he knows that the northern public uh, really isn't in this to, to fight over slavery. Um, and there's a lot of resistance to that. Uh, so I think he's, uh, he's you know, uh, more or less in line uh, with much of northern opinion. And yes, I think the Emancipation Proclamation is initially uh, a war measure. And he says as much. So pragmatic, not necessarily uh, right. <laughs> a great though, human rights uh, move. You know, he was very morally opposed to slavery, and by the end of his life, uh, he's really echoing Brown uh, in his uh, uh, last great speech, uh, second inaugural, um, not long before he's assassinated, uh, where he says, uh, essentially, uh, only blood could... Uh, you know, purge the land of uh, of slavery, um, and if this is God's will, so be it. And this is, this sounds very much like what Brown said before the gallows. So, I mean, in a lot of ways, John Brown was just ahead of his time. Uh, yeah, I mean, he, I don't think he was alone. There were certainly others uh, uh, who shared his views. Um, I mean, he's a mix. It's an interesting because his religious beliefs are actually uh, very uh, uh, conservative, really a throwback. People often liken him to Cromwell. He had these uh, what were then regarded as somewhat old-fashioned uh, uh, Calvinist beliefs in predestination and the depravity of human nature, uh, yet he was in incredibly forward-looking um, uh, on you know, uh, racial and political matters. Well, I guess where the, the problems come in when people regard Brown uh, from the distance of the present is, is his use of violence. I mean, that's probably the thing that upsets people the most or, or confuses them the most. What was his relationship to violence? Yeah, most abolitionists are staunch pacifists. They believe in opposing slavery through education and moral uplift. And Brown derides this as what he calls milk-and-water abolitionism. He thinks slavery is a state of war and must be met in kind. 
um, and he does so first in Kansas, um, where he leads a party that uh, slaughters uh, pro-slavery settlers, and then he takes to the open field um, to fight you know, uh, pro-slave forces in battle. Uh, really, this is a, a preview of the Civil War. Uh, so he feels this is a, a necessary measure um, to, to overthrow uh, this evil. And, you know, it really raises that eternal question of, of means and ends. Is violence ever justified uh, in the cause of justice? It absolutely does, and we're going to talk more about that. Let's go back, though, to that incident. Uh, you mentioned the massacre, the Potawatomi Massacre, uh, in Kansas in uh, 1856? Yep. Um, now, the, the pro-slavery forces had been using violence quite a bit, not only in, obviously, in the uh, in enslaving people <laughs> and transporting them and, and abusing them in various ways, but also in trying to spread slavery uh, politically. There had been these border ruffians from the southern state of Missouri going into the Kansas territories and trying to um, suppress uh, free staters who wanted the emerging state of Kansas to be a non-slavery state. So, so Brown had witnessed a lot of violence on the part of pro-slavery forces, and he uh, took it upon himself to, to fight back. What happened in this massacre? Uh, yeah, it, it happens in the context of what at that point is a sort of low-grade guerrilla conflict, where, as you said, uh, the pro-slavery forces have really uh, committed almost all the violence. Um, and there's a particularly shocking act where a uh, pro-slave army uh, pillages the free state capital of Lawrence. And just a few days after that, Brown leads a, a, a party, including a number of his sons, in a night raid on a pro-slavery settlement, uh, drags uh, five men from their beds, and hacks them to death with broadswords. And as one of his sons uh, later explained, uh, the enemy needed shock treatment, death for death. My sense of, of John Brown from reading your your book, though, is that he wasn't a violent man in his private life. He wasn't some guy who was a thug elsewhere but this situation so outraged him that he thought this kind of you know fairly brutal violence was justified yeah actually early in his life he's a pacifist uh, he admires quakers uh, he's sort of disgusted with what he sees uh, of the army uh, you know he's a man who's really uh, radicalized by his times so i think he always has this uh, temperamental part of him that is uh, looking for a fight, but he's no, he's not a uh, some you know wild uh, homicidal character. Uh, uh, he's really uh, driven to this and is quite targeted in his use of violence. Now, his sons who took part in that raid, some of them were quite upset by that. Absolutely. Well, you can imagine how uh, traumatic this is to you know essentially uh, a butcher men like so much cattle. Um, and yeah, several of his sons are, are, are really traumatized. And ultimately, three of his sons die fighting slavery alongside him. At Harper's Ferry? Uh, one in Kansas and two in Harper's Ferry. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. He lost a lot of children. Terrible. He, he fathers 20 children in all, and nine of them uh, die bef- before reaching the age of 10. Uh, and then, as I mentioned, three die fighting with him, and, and others are wounded and psychologically scarred. So it's a tremendous toll on his family. Let's get to the, the Harper's Ferry Raid in, in uh, 1859. What was his plan? His plan, ostensibly, was to come through the mountains, uh, seize the Federal Armory at Harper's Ferry, Virginia, which had 100,000 guns, uh, free and armed slaves, and move back to the mountains and continue south in this uh, sort of rolling campaign of liberation that he felt would ultimately uh, undermine the institution. And he managed to solicit uh, backing from a number of prominent uh, abolitionist uh, northerners. He managed to get a relatively small number of men to join him in this excursion, uh, 21 in all? Yeah, he has uh, 21 men with him at a, a mountain hideout in Maryland, five miles uh, from Harper's Ferry. And as you mentioned, he has considerable uh, support uh, behind the lines from a very prominent uh, abolitionist, uh, particularly a group known as the Secret Six. So he's he's in no sense a, a lone gunman or some kind of alienated loner. He's, he's got quite a following. So down there in Harper's Ferry, Virginia, which he's planning to attack in the middle of the night, uh, there is an, a federal armory uh, and a rifle work. So there's a lot of weaponry. But did his plan have any chance of succeeding, even on a small scale, in, in uh, you know instigating a slave revolt? Um, possibly. I don't think it's a 
terribly realistic plan, and I don't think he takes the steps necessary uh, to, to give it a chance. For instance, alerting slaves in the surrounding area what he's up to. He doesn't do that. Um, so what I kind of explore in the book is the possibility that really, uh, while he hoped this uh, very ambitious scheme might work, um, that he was fully prepared to die at Harper's Ferry, uh, to be a martyr to the cause, and also to really shock the nation uh, into confronting this great issue. Um, and in that sense, he succeeded. Tell me about some of the, the people to, to join his band. Yeah, they're, they're wonderful, and really my favorite characters uh, in this story uh, because they're not uh, cult followers or suicidal zealots. Uh, they're a very diverse uh, bunch of farmers and factory workers. You've got Quakers, uh, one man educated at Oberlin. You've got bad poets. You've got free blacks and fugitive slaves. Uh, this very diverse group that uh, shares his passion for uh, overthrowing slavery, but otherwise has uh, very little in common with him. Um, tell me about Dangerfield Newby, one of, one of the men in Brown's unit. Right. He's uh, one of five uh, black men in Brown's band, and he's a, uh, uh, a Virginia-born slave who has recently been freed when his uh, owner uh, moves to Ohio, but his wife and children are still in bondage in Virginia, and he is just desperate to free them. And he's uh, saved a lot of money, worked hard. He's got CDs in an Ohio bank, but uh, his wife's owner uh, raises the price and refuses to sell and sends uh, him these really heartbreaking letters, you know, come, come save me, Dangerfield. And he heeds this plea and joins Brown's band. Yeah, uh, you quote some of the letters from his wife, and she's thinking she might get sold. He's a free black in the North. She wrote, um, I want you to buy me as soon as possible, or if you do not get me, somebody else will. It is said master is in want of money. If so, I know not what time he may sell me, and then all my bright hopes of the future are blasted. For there has been one bright hope to cheer me in all my troubles. That is to be with you. Right. No, I mean, these are heartbreaking letters, and we don't often hear, frankly, from slaves. Uh, and it's one of the remarkable aspects of this story that we have uh, these kinds of letters. And uh, I, I don't want to spoil the story, but it, it ends tragically. Uh, uh, Dangerfield Newby is the first of uh, Brown's men gunned down in Harper's Ferry, uh, 50 miles short of his uh, goal of reaching Harriet, who is then sold to a plantation in Louisiana. So her, her fear was uh, fulfilled. Yeah. Yeah. So they do stage this raid in the middle of the night uh, on October 16th, 1859. They do manage to get hold of the armory and rifle works as they planned, but things start going wrong almost from the, the outset. Yeah, his, his men are inexperienced, and uh, there are no silencers in 1859. <laughs> so when his raiders uh, uh, fire a few shots in the night, uh, Virginians really begin to, to wake up to this invasion of their town. Uh, and they and militiamen arriving from uh, surrounding towns uh, uh, managed to, to uh, really bottle Brown up inside uh, uh, this armory, where he also is holding uh, uh, 45 uh, white hostages. Uh, so at this point, it's a little bit like a, a bank heist, you know, gone bad with the uh, robbers uh, stuck inside the bank uh, with their hostages, um, with, you know, uh, no option but to sort of negotiate or shoot their way out. We should say that Brown was, um, by your account, very uh, good to the hostages. He did not threaten them. He did not abuse them. He ordered breakfast for them. He let some of them actually leave to go talk to their families. I know. It's, yeah. it's, it's really this sort of remarkably uh, uh, courtly uh, scene. Uh, you know, this is not yet Civil War, where, where North and South view each other as, you know, uh, different species almost. Um, you know, he, yeah, he orders from a nearby hotel uh, to bring breakfast to the hostages, and uh, there are these curious uh, episodes within what becomes a, a very brutal scene. His men, uh, you say Dangerfield Newby was the, the first to be gunned down right in the street. Uh, his body's left there for the hogs to root in. Um, and then, you know, one by one, they die in various ways. Some of them try to escape and are shot in the river, crossing the river. I don't know. I, I just thought if, I, if this were a movie, it would definitely be a tragedy. 
Oh, it's a terrible scene, and, and uh, um, you know, I follow them through the summer before this while they're hiding out and writing all these letters, so, you know, you get to know these guys, you care about them, and then to see them, yeah, essentially picked off uh, of one by one, um, you know, it's very painful, and there are losses on the other side as well. Uh, there are ultimately uh, uh, five people killed on the other side, um, and also two slaves who are caught up in this. Uh, freed, but then uh, uh, die as a result of this raid. Yeah, we should say that a lot goes on in this this <laughs> this raid. Uh, for just just nineteen guys, actually, two are left behind in Maryland. So so just nineteen guys plus John Brown, right? Uh, yeah, eighteen plus Brown, and yeah, there are there the numbers shift a little bit because some of them go back to the Maryland side, but they are roughly um, uh, nineteen men in all. Okay, so roughly nineteen men uh, in a very short amount of time managed to seize. The armory and the rifle works, and uh, several of them uh, make raids on houses where they take a few hostages and they free a couple of slaves who they, do they recruit them? I guess that's the right word. Well, uh, um, unfortunately, we, we don't hear uh, much from, from the slaves themselves who are liberated. But yes, they raid uh, some plantations, and uh, perhaps a dozen in all uh, slaves are uh, uh, brought back to the, uh, the armory. Uh, some of them are armed. And it appears that uh, uh, some of them were willing and others were, you know, just kind of caught up in this. Yeah, well, for them, there was no warning. It's the middle of the night. Uh, they're asked to go risk their lives and maybe their families' lives by taking part in this scheme that they, you know, I mean, I, I'm just trying to imagine what it must have been like for them. Some people have said afterwards, well, why didn't more slaves join? First of all, there weren't that many slaves contacted. Not many had the opportunity. This all took place very fast. It was just a couple of houses that were raided. But also, I mean, the motivation for joining this crazy-seeming adventure must have been uh, mysterious to them in some ways. Yeah, it's, or confusing. It, it, Brown doesn't get out the word in advance, and Harper's Ferry itself is a very industrial town where there aren't many slaves. Uh, the slaves live in uh, uh, farms and plantations in the in the surrounding counties, um, and I think also. Uh, I think slaves know what's at stake here, that, uh, for instance, in the Nat Turner slave rebellion in 1831, uh, which briefly succeeds uh, and then fails, uh, the reprisals are just awful. Hundreds of blacks are just massacred. Uh, new laws are brought in to, to you know, tighten uh, control over both slaves and free blacks in the South. Uh, so, you know, there's a tremendous amount of stake, tremendous risk uh, in joining this enterprise. Now, the, the South had an interest in playing down any slave participation, um, and they, some of the newspapers down there reported that the few slaves who were part of this uprising didn't do anything, were even sleeping in the armory as it was under siege, which seems utterly impossible. Right. Uh, you know, I mean, I, I don't trust that at all. Yeah. But, but some people have contended, on the other hand, that there were many more slaves involved, that uh, this this whole... Part of the history has been lost, partly because they say, and I have no idea what evidence backs this up, but that John Brown and his people covered for them, that they did not want to betray those slaves who had taken part and uh, get them into trouble afterwards. Well, this is one, you know, murky aspect of the story, and it, it's frustrating ultimately because we can't know. Again, we don't uh, uh, hear from uh, the slaves themselves, except in a, a few very rare instances. Um, I personally just um, didn't feel there was strong enough evidence that really uh, there were large numbers uh, of slaves who, who knew about this and were, were uh, waiting, you know, to join in. Um, I know there are, are, are scholars out there who would disagree with me, and I think it's a, unfortunately a question we simply uh, can't answer. Uh, it's one of those what-ifs. If Brown had succeeded a little more, if he'd had more time, would we have seen this uh, uh, sort of general uprising? And I, I you we just ultimately we can't really say. Well, you know, part of the reason why that question is freighted for a lot of people is the idea was promoted after John Brown's raid that oh, these lazy or cowardly African Americans didn't even rise up to support their you know would be liberator. Right. Clearly, there's this uh, Southern fiction that's put out during his trial and afterwards that, you know, uh, blacks had remained loyal and those that were caught up in it were, you know, simply against their will and, uh, you know, all these um, uh, stereotypes of the time. And clearly, that's uh, not true. 
Um, I think the question is really whether uh, slaves were aware of what was really going on, um, uh, that this was a, an abolitionist act, um, and also, as you said, that they really didn't have an opportunity to, to get involved. Uh, within uh, uh, sort of 12 hours of the launching of this raid, uh, Brown is uh, bottled up in Harper's Ferry, and at that point it becomes uh, essentially a doomed enterprise. So he and uh, the remaining members of his uh, group are are stuck in this tiny uh, engine house attached to the armory, and it's under siege. And it's eventually, first, it's a, a local militia that's that's pinning them down, and then uh, in come the federal troops led by none other than uh, I think at the time Colonel Robert E. Lee, right? Correct. It's uh, another uh, curious aspect to this story. Um, you have Robert E. Lee and Jeb Stewart arriving on the scene uh, in charge of uh, federal Marines. Uh, later, uh, Stonewall Jackson appears. Um, also, John Wilkes Booth. Uh, Jefferson Davis is leading the uh, uh, charge in Congress to condemn the raid and investigate it. It's almost a, a dress rehearsal for the Confederacy uh, here at Harper's Ferry. It's, uh, it's really a, a quite an amazing cast. Now, uh, in this bloody siege where these greatly outnumbered rebels led by John Brown are, you know, rather quickly put to rout, um, and, you know, it's pretty horrific for them, uh, when the troops burst into this engine house, I mean, those who haven't already been shot and aren't already dead or dying are are bayoneted and, uh, you know, shot at close range. And Brown himself, I guess, uh, he's attacked with a, with a saber. Right. And and quite miraculously survives. Uh, apparently, the the marine who who strikes him has, in his nervousness that day, uh, and rush, uh, grabbed a a parade ground saber rather than a you know proper battle weapon, um, and he stabs at and strikes Brown, uh, but it, it doesn't penetrate. And so while Brown is is wounded, he's not killed. But he's hacked up pretty good. Yeah, he gets a, a good beating and, and stabbing. He's, you know, he's, he's badly wounded, but he survives, which is uh, quite astonishing under the circumstances. <laughs> Tell me about how John Brown then behaved, uh, you know, when he was captured uh, and, and through his trial. Right. This is uh, kind of the, the great irony uh, of his story, is that this uh, man who has prided himself on, uh, on his actions and uh, had contempt for abolitionists who just talk, uh, fails in his actions at Harper's Ferry, but he ultimately triumphs uh, through his words. Uh, it's his um, statements and letters uh, in court and prison uh, that really uh, galvanized the North. Uh, he's so eloquent and, and so courageous um, that he really uh, becomes uh, legendary. And by the time he's hanged, he's really a Christ figure to many in the North. So it's an astonishing uh, sort of six weeks before, between this uh, seemingly failed raid um, and his uh, sort of death as a martyr hero uh, on the gallows. Well, it's almost like something out of fiction. This this guy really never wavers. He never cowers. He never has a moment of doubt. He fights essentially to the almost to the last breath in the siege and when captured immediately announces that he doesn't regret anything that he's, you know, fighting for what's right. Uh and uh and his trial which is quite remarkable. Uh you know, he never denies any of the charges uh and how could he that he had staged the raid? But then, after being um, convicted, which was a foregone conclusion, yeah. uh, of uh, charges like homicide and treason, right. he's asked if he has anything to say, and he spontaneously gives this kind of oration. It's, it's amazing. Uh, do, you, do you know it by heart? <laughs> I, I don't know. My son memorized it for a class, uh, uh, class project. Uh, it's about a five-minute speech. And he does several things in this speech that are that are remarkable. Uh, you know, he says, "I may be uh, guilty under Virginia law, but you Virginians and Southerners are, are guilty, uh, you know, under a much bigger law. You know, the higher law, the law of God." Uh, and essentially says, "You know, God and justice on one side, slavery on the other. Which side are you on?" And he goes on really to say that uh, not only is slavery a crime. But to not oppose it, as he has done, uh, would be a sin. And I think in this sense, he's really confronting Northerners. What are you doing? Which side are you on? What are you doing? Uh, I actually have some quotes I'd like to read. Uh, sure. Because the eloquence is really impressive. So he's asked if he has anything to say, 
And he wasn't even prepared for this. He wasn't, uh, this moment wasn't something he knew was coming. And he stood up and he said, had I interfered in the manner which I admit, and which I admit has been fairly proved, had I so interfered in behalf of the rich, the powerful, the intelligent, the so-called great, or in behalf of any of their friends, either father, mother, brother, sister, wife, or children, or any of that class, and suffered and sacrificed what I have in this interference, it would have been all right. Every man in this court would have deemed it an act worthy of reward rather than punishment. The court acknowledges, too, as I suppose, the validity of the law of God. I see a book kissed here, which I suppose to be the Bible, or at least the New Testament. That teaches me that all things whatsoever I would men should do to me, I should do ever so to them. It teaches me further to remember them that are in bonds as bound with them. I endeavored to act up to these instructions. I believe to have interfered as I have done, as I have always freely admitted I have done, in behalf of his despised poor, was no wrong but right. Now, if it is deemed necessary that I should forfeit my life for the furtherance of the ends of justice and mingle my blood further with the blood of my children and with the blood of millions in this slave country whose rights are disregarded by wicked, cruel, and unjust enactments, I submit, so let it be done. Exactly. I mean, you know, it's, uh, it's a very powerful speech. He's, he's abided by... Uh, the golden rule, essentially, and the biblical injunction, as he sees it, to uh, uh, lift up uh, the oppressed. And, you know, to, to have done otherwise would have been wrong. Uh, so he, he really makes his, uh, his sentence a, a triumph. He really throws it back in the faces of the people who have convicted him. Do you think um, eloquence like that was was more common in those days. I don't know anybody who could say something like that spontaneously now. Uh, I know. No, I mean, it is remarkable reading these letters and these speeches and, uh, you know, uh, not just Brown, but uh, Lincoln and, uh, and Frederick Douglass. Uh, yeah, no one talks about this <laughs> anymore. It really is astonishing. Um, and it was one of the joys of, of doing this book is that I got to spend so much time uh, uh, reading these sort of things. Uh, John Brown made one more statement when he walked to the gallows. He wrote something on a scrap of paper that he handed to one of his jail guards. And uh, this may be his most famous statement of all, uh, because it's seen as sort of prophetic. He wrote, I, John Brown, am now quite certain that the crimes of this guilty land will never be purged away but with blood. Yeah, I think it's a, a, a capsule of his belief that um, uh, only violence can can end slavery, and that in some senses, uh, blood sacrifice is necessary to to cleanse the nation uh, of this sin. And you know, sure enough, eighteen months later, uh, the Civil War breaks out, and six hundred and twenty thousand Americans uh, must die before uh, slavery is uh, fully abolished. Uh, so, uh, you know, it is, in a sense, a, uh, a remarkably prophetic statement. Um, do you think John Brown's raid, which then galvanized opinion, it caused some abolitionists to think that, yes, you know, uh, direct action like this was unavoidable. Uh, it certainly um, upset the South very deeply. They went into a like a, a fit of paranoia about northern agitators, about northern incursions, about other plots that might be afoot. Do you think it hastened the Civil War? I think it certainly hastened the Civil War. I think it's too much to say that it caused the Civil War because uh, uh, there are a number of events uh, and, and factors. Um, but it, you know, it's an accelerant. Uh, it, it exposes how deep this divide is uh, between North and South and, and greatly uh, widens it. And as you said, the South uh, goes into this sort of panic and paranoia uh, when they see the North uh, idolize this figure that they've just uh, uh, hanged for uh, uh, treason and insurrection. Uh, and they begin to you know, wonder whether any Northerner can be trusted. And, and they're all closet abolitionists. It really gives gives um, fodder to the extremists on the southern side to begin whipping up this uh, secessionist fury, and, and they really even begin mobilizing for war at that point. So, Tony, we, we said earlier that we would talk about whether ends justify means. If the ends in this case were to get rid of slavery sooner rather than later, and it took a war to do that, and, and John Brown made it happen who knows how many years sooner than it might have otherwise happened, 
was a raid in which um, a couple dozen people were killed, mostly his people. Um, was it worth it? Was it right? Well, uh, you know, as you say, it was a trickle compared to what was to come. Uh, about 25 people in all lose their lives as a result of this raid. And, you know, compared to, to Antietam and Gettysburg, um, uh, you know, uh, this isn't much. I, I think it's a, a, an impossible question to, to, to answer of whether this conflict could have been resolved any other way. Um, what I find most tragic is despite this, uh, huge loss of life uh, in the course of the war. Slavery is abolished, but black people aren't really freed. Uh, it takes us uh, another century, uh, really, to, to sort that out. And, and in some senses, we're still uh, struggling over these issues. Uh, so I think it's worth asking, at least, whether uh, there could have been a better way to resolve this. And I, I don't have an answer to that. But, you know, I've wondered at times whether uh, if Brown had uh, tried a more of a sort of freedom rider approach, uh, a nonviolent uh, act uh, that, again, probably would have ended in, in the death of himself and his men, uh, but might not have um, uh, sparked so much violence. Mm -hmm. uh, um, so I, I think it's, uh, it's really an open question. Um, I'm, I'm very curious about the ambivalence uh, or the, the sharply differing uh, perceptions uh, that people have of John Brown. On the one hand, he was definitely a hero for some, and, and there was the the song uh, "John Brown's Body" that started being sung not that long after by uh, by Northern troops. Do you know the lyrics to that? Uh, not the whole lyrics, but you know, John Brown's body lies mouldering in the grave. There were there were a number of different versions, but it essentially was invoking his spirit as they carried on his struggle. His truth goes marching on, or his soul well, goes marching on. Well, it gets adapted on. into the Battle Hymn of the Republic, uh -huh. um, which isn't explicitly about Brown, but is really uh, infused with his uh, with his crusading spirit. Yeah. So on the one hand, people are starting to regard him, as you say, almost Christ-like, or at least as a as a politically righteous man. On the other hand, he was cast as a madman, and that one comes up a lot. I mean, I remember my history book as a kid. I don't think it called him a, a madman, but it certainly had that famous painting of him right. where he looked kind of crazy. Or as a terrorist or, or a criminal, you know, I mean, there's so many different ways. I mean, part of it is that he used violence and that he went outside the law, that this was kind of a, obviously, a vigilante action. It wasn't authorized by the country. Yeah, and, and this is why uh, uh, Brown remains such a compelling and uh, uh, difficult figure, because you can't really say uh, he's right or he's wrong. I think the, the question he raises is, is one of example. Uh, what's interesting to me is, is the people who have embraced him since. Um, and cited his model. And interestingly, they're on both the extremes of, of right and left. Um, anarchists in the late 19th century, uh, Black Panthers and Weathermen in the last century, but also um, anti-abortion bombers and Timothy McVeigh have all invoked Brown. Um, so, yes, you can say uh, there are times when uh, an individual should follow his or her own conscience and defy the state, um, but uh, it kind of depends uh, whether you uh, agree with what their conscience is saying to them. You know, the, John Brown is sometimes cast as crazy, but these were crazy times. I mean, you, you could say that the whole nation had gone mad uh, morally. You know, it was living with this massive monstrosity and this lie and trying to justify it in all these different ways. Yeah, calling him crazy, um, which happened immediately and still happens today, was really a way to dismiss him, uh, to, to kind of sideline this, this alarming figure and say, oh, well, it's, it's one, one crazy man's uh, act. Um, but uh, uh, Thoreau said, uh, uh, you know, the next year when the, the nation is lurching towards secession and war, you know, they all called him crazy then. Who calls him crazy now? Uh, so I think, um, you know, uh, uh, really, uh, <laughs> he was not insane. He knew what he was doing, and he knew what the uh, the consequences were. And you're right, it was uh, uh, a world gone crazy, in a sense. And looking back from our contemporary viewpoint, where we, we just can't, I mean, I can't imagine standing by in a nation where, uh, you know, millions of people were enslaved. Sure, four million slaves. Four million slaves. I mean, I just can't imagine even wanting to live in or have anything to do with such a country. But... Uh, looking for a righteous white man in that era, 
you know, uh, you can get pretty frustrated looking for a perfect example of someone who believed in equality, and John Brown was that person. Right, um, <laughs> and I think that's why he does, always has, uh, had, and still does, uh, you know, uh, some very uh, uh, big fans, you know, <laughs> uh, people who really uh, do regard him as a, as a hero and a freedom fighter, and he's also um, really uh, always been a, an icon to uh, the African-American community. Um, so you know he uh, he's, he remains that very uh, uh, compelling figure, uh, but he also you know at the same time raises uncomfortable questions. Yeah, um, tell me about the people uh, you call brownieacs. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's sort of just an informal phrase for um, people who are who are really you know passionate uh, about this man and this story, um, and it's a. Uh, uh, you know, a community of uh, scholars, some academics, some independent scholars, um, and others who uh, gather occasionally at conferences or other events, but also uh, online uh, to talk about Brown um, and uh, to remember him and also his family, um, uh, most of which ended up out here in California. Uh, so, you know, they're a fascinating, uh, uh, passionate, and quite diverse group. Are they, are they mostly committed to... Um honoring uh, the legacy of John Brown? Yes, I would say uh, Browniacs uh, uh, tend to be, uh, uh, you know, uh, very admiring of him, yes. They think he got has gotten a bad rap as, as a fanatic, a zealot, a madman, a lunatic, right? Yeah, I think in a sense it's, it's a, um, uh, they want to uh, retrieve his, his memory uh, from, uh, you know, a long era where, as you said in your textbook, uh, you know, he, and in art and lore, you know, he's often been depicted as this uh, uh, sort of madman and fanatic and, and probably insane. And I think uh, there's this strong desire to uh, uh, remember him as a, as a, as a hero. And, and, uh, and not as the way he's been depicted. I can't help but think of his own words that had he staged a similar action to rescue a lot of well-to-do white people, whether there would be any argument about him at all today. Right. Well, again, he was throwing it back in the face of, of Virginians who had convicted him, really, and saying that, uh, you know, I, I did right. And when he's, he's referring to his despised poor, he means God's despised poor. Um, that he's, you know, he's acting in accordance uh, with the Bible. And here you have me, you know, swear on a Bible in this court, and you are not abiding by it. So I think it's, it's part of uh, why his argument is so powerful. Frederick Douglass later says something wonderful about it. He says, you know, uh, the South could kill John Brown, but they couldn't answer him. And I think that's very true. Do you think he, he was right, though, when he said that, um, if he, he used that word interfered, which is an interesting word, yeah. if I had interfered in behalf of the rich, the powerful, the intelligent, the so-called great, or in behalf of any of their friends, etc., um, it would have been all right. Every man in this court would have deemed it as an act worthy of reward rather than punishment. Do you think that's true? Yeah, I'm not sure exactly if I could imagine what that act would have been. Um, uh, rating of federal arsenal to do what? <laughs> I mean, it's an interesting uh, well, okay, statement. Give... I'm having a little trouble okay. imagining exactly, you know, uh, what what hypothetical one could construct. Oh, can I give you one? Let's say sure. let's say that a group of uh, Indians had mm-hmm. captured a large number of white settlers. Right. And, you know, we're enslaving them. Right. Uh, and, and Brown staged a raid in which he killed some, right. some, some innocent Indians in the course of, of trying to, to liberate all those captives. Mm-hmm. Do you think the country would have condemned him? No, no. <laughs> I mean, he's absolutely right in that. He's, he's sort of pointing up the, uh, you know, the moral blindness of the nation, really. Uh, he's really trying to stir the, the conscience of the nation, and that's, you know, ultimately what he succeeds in doing. Um, by the way, that word intelligent uh, do you know how he was, how he meant that word? If I had uh, interfered on behalf of the, the, the rich, the powerful, intelligent. Yeah, I don't think he meant that as in any way an insult to black people because he certainly didn't think, uh, you know, black people were unintelligent. Maybe he meant uh, educated, uh, whatever, higher class people of some sort. I think I, I think you're right. That's exactly yeah. what I thought. Yeah, uh, and I think that's how the word was used sometimes at that mm-hmm. time. Um, if Jeff Brown were alive today. Do you have any guesses as to what he would be up to? 
I think he'd certainly be out there doing something. Uh, you know, whether it's uh, uh, you know Occupy Wall Street or, or other uh, movements. Um, you know, I think this was a, a man who would have been destined to be uh, an activist um, in any era. I think you could argue in a in a perhaps strange way that um, uh, the Tea Party, in some sense, um, are, are heirs to Brown in their. Uh, religious fundamentalism of many uh, Tea Party followers uh, in their reverence for founding documents. I mean, Brown is uh, always uh, going on about the Constitution. He feels he's he's fulfilling the Constitution. Uh, this is a, a second American revolution. Um, in their uh, uh, really deep hatred of the government, Brown uh, despises Washington, refers to them as leeches. Um, so, you know, while we think of him, yes, he was a pro- progressive figure. In other respects, I think uh, we can see strains uh, uh, of him in, in what's happening on the right as well today. Um, having written the book, do you feel as though you've put him to rest for, for your own purposes, or does he still trouble you in some ways? Yeah, absolutely. I'm, I, um, uh, I, I feel I don't have uh, more to, to write about this story, but I think there are certain aspects of the story that you can never put to rest, and that's why he'll always be around uh, haunting us. There was a novelist, uh, uh, Truman Nelson, who wrote 50 years ago that uh, John Brown is uh, the stone in the historian's shoe. You know, he's just always there. We can't shake him out. He's, you know, uh, he's that irritant, um, in my view, in a good way, because he forces us to keep asking these questions. Uh, so, uh, no, I, I, uh, John Brown is uh, not moldering uh, whatever uh, in my imagination. <laughs> he's still very alive. Yeah, well, I, when I read about that era, all I can say is, I mean, two things come to mind. Um, number one, thank goodness I'm not alive because, <laughs> honestly, I have no idea what, what right action would be. I mean, to, right. be, to be an abolitionist is definitely right, but to be a right. passive abolitionist, well, right. maybe that's not enough. Right. But to, on the other hand, uh, wade in and start shooting people, right. you know, and some of them quite innocent, right. you know, doesn't seem right either. There doesn't seem to be any right, and I think that would drive me nuts. Right, no. So I said one thing that uh, I think about is that I'm sure glad I wasn't alive during those times. And then the other is, okay, a hundred years hence, will people look back on this time and spot a similar evil that I am countenancing, that I'm not doing anything about? Will uh, standards have changed sufficiently that something that we take for granted or live with will be considered an abomination, like slavery is now? I wonder, for instance, suppose we go completely in the direction of animal rights, we might all be thought to be mass murderers, you know? Mm-hmm. I mean, that sounds silly, but you never know, a hundred years hence. You know? Right. I, I don't think there's a, an issue today with quite the um, uh, clarity of the slavery issue, yeah, um, yeah. but I agree. It's, it, Brown forces you to think about what are, what are we morally blind to today? Um, whether, as you say, maybe it's animal rights, uh, maybe it's the climate, maybe it's war itself, um, where you know, future generations will look back and say, you know, what were they thinking? And and who knows, there may be a, a John Brown of sorts who will appear on the scene who will uh, uh, awaken us to this. Well, thank you, Tony. Thanks really so much for it. having me. Tony Horwitz, talking about his new book, Midnight Rising, John Brown and the Raid that Sparked the Civil War. This is the Seventh Avenue Project. I'm Robert Polly. Well, I wanted to uh, dig a little deeper into some of the moral problems uh, that John Brown's raid presents, and uh, I particularly wanted to know how a contemporary ethicist might look at the situation. So I got in touch with uh, one of the best known ethicists around. Peter Singer, whenever I uh, run up against a uh, really murky or sticky moral problem and I want a clear headed answer, you're one of the guys who comes foremost to mind. That's good to hear. I don't know whether I can actually always give you a, a clear answer, but I'll do my best. Well, do you know the story of John Brown? Uh, yes, I uh, remember broadly, not all the uh, details perhaps, but in broad terms. Uh, America has never known what to make of him. Was he a crazy man? Was he a zealot? Was he a, a radical militant? Or was he just someone who was ahead of his time and, and did what he had to do? I'm just very curious uh, what, what you make of civil disobedience on that level? Well, this is not what you would call civil disobedience. I mean, I don't understand uh, violent attacks on people in which you're uh, shooting at people or something like that as as civil disobedience. Um, Civil disobedience is more like what uh, uh, Gandhi or um, Martin Luther King did, 
Um, it's it's an attempt to change going outside the law, but in a non-violent way, and being prepared to accept the penalty for what you do. It's a way of testifying to the importance of the issue and the seriousness of the moral wrong. And I think, obviously, civil disobedience against slavery would be completely justified. Um, but I don't think that this kind of uh, violent act is justified, at least generally. I mean, I wouldn't say it can never be justified, but, but in a society in which there are democratic channels to use, even if they seem not to be working at the time, um, I'd be extremely reluctant to say that uh, the use of violence in a political cause is justifiable. Now, you know, as I say, I wouldn't say never. I mean, if if it was the only way to stop some uh, enormous atrocity that was going to take place right then and there, unless you killed somebody, uh, maybe that would be justifiable. But 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 you know, while slavery was certainly an atrocity. Uh, the question was, how are you actually going to change it and get rid of it? And I think the trouble with violence in societies where you don't have public opinion on your side um, is that it's very unlikely that it's really going to produce the change that you want, and it may just make things worse by starting a, uh, a more repressive reaction. Now, um, in, in Brown's case, many say that that action of his actually helped precipitate the Civil War, which, of course, was extremely bloody but did end up emancipating the slaves and, if not immediately, bringing racial equality to the United States. Um, given that that might have been a consequence, would you, would you take the same stand? Well, I mean, obviously one can't really know what would have happened had history been different and had there not been uh, John Brown and, and the raid on Harper's Ferry. Um, so if you want to make it as a strictly hypothetical question, <laughs> assume that uh, without John Brown's raid, the Civil War, it would never occur. You then get into the other very difficult question, I think, of um, balancing all the bloodshed uh, and suffering that the Civil War caused against the fact that it, it no doubt brought the end of slavery forward by a number of years. But we don't know by how many years. I mean, nobody would seriously imagine that slavery would still exist in the United States today if there had never been a civil war. Um, Russia, for example, had serfdom at the time of the uh, civil war, but um, the serfs were liberated within, uh, I think, uh, 15 or 20 years after the civil war. Um, that would have left the United States as the only sort of major sort of country to continue with with slavery, certainly, you know, in, in comparing themselves with European countries and other countries, they would have seen that they were standing out. I, I think there would have been immense moral pressure on slavery anyway. Um, and while it no doubt would have continued to do terrible harm for uh, the decade or two that it may well have continued, uh, would that harm have been greater than the harm done by the Civil War? It's difficult to say, isn't it? Well, some people take the case of John Brown as sort of, you know, the, the, the paradigm of society itself and its laws conspiring to commit incredibly heinous acts on a very large scale. Um, other situations where that's happened, well, the Third Reich, Nazi Germany, and, and many other cases. In, in, in such cases, should uh, an activist like John Brown nonetheless restrain himself uh, and, and try to work through political channels that, you know, may be completely corrupt or... or uh, incapable of of addressing the problem? Well, of course, in Nazi Germany, there were no political channels that you could work through. Yes. If you raised your head in opposition, you were going to be thrown in a concentration camp uh, or executed. Um, so uh, I think uh, violent opposition to uh, the Nazi regime was, was totally justified, and one can only wish that the Hitler bomb plot had uh, come earlier and had been more successful. It would have averted uh, terrible tragedy and terrible crimes. Um, so yes, in, in that sort of case, that I think is definitely justified. The most difficult question, I guess, would be where you have a, a democratic regime and you have democratic channels, but one that is still doing something quite terrible. Um, I mean, during the Vietnam War, many people thought that that was the case, that uh, the Vietnam War was, was a terrible thing that this nation was doing, not comparable to the Nazi crimes, but still... Um, waging and prolonging a war uh, which was causing a huge amount of, of, of death toll and a lot of injuries and so on. Uh, and so there was uh, a lot of debate about the means, the legitimate means of protest 
in the Vietnam War. Um, I still think that while, uh, again, I think civil disobedience was completely justified, I think um, breaking into draft centers and destroying their records, for instance, was, was justifiable. But I don't think that um, actually trying to kill people um, in order to stop the Vietnam War would have been justifiable. Uh, so I think, you know, if you could imagine a situation where a democratic country sets out to exterminate a minority as the Nazi regime did, and you had some prospect of stopping that by the use of violence, I suppose then obviously I would have to say yes, you know, if killing 20 people could stop the murder of millions, yes, that would obviously be the right thing to do. But it, it's pretty hard to imagine such circumstances in a in an open democracy with a free press. Um, uh, it's really you'd have to have a very bleak view of human nature to think that people would be prepared to vote for governments that do that. Except, of course, Americans did just that with regard to slavery. They even wrote uh, the original Constitution uh, with a um, tacit approval of slavery. Uh, so, you know, it was, it, it was a case of a society gone wrong for a time there. Well, so, look, slavery was a dreadful institution. There's no question about that. I don't think of slavery as equivalent to the Nazi Holocaust. I mean, the, slavery was not an attempt to murder all of the people. Um, a large numbers of them died, and particularly, of course, when the slave trade was actually going on, that was a further atrocity in which... Many, I think, millions died, but by the time of uh, John Brown, uh, the, the slave trade from Africa was at least was was over. Um, so I think we we have to be careful and uh, say, you know, yes, this was a terrible moral stain on on America, um, but it was not the same as the example that I was just uh, imagining. Right. Well, thank you, Peter. I really appreciate you taking the time for this. Good. You're welcome. And that was Peter Singer, professor of bioethics at Princeton University. And he was right to point out that civil disobedience is usually thought of as nonviolent resistance, so it doesn't exactly apply to the case of John Brown. But it is worth noting that the guy who is perhaps most identified with the phrase civil disobedience, Henry David Thoreau, was also a big defender of John Brown's raid on Harper's Ferry. He wrote, it was his peculiar doctrine that a man has a perfect right to interfere by force with the slaveholder in order to rescue the slave. I agree with him. I shall not be forward to think him mistaken in his method who quickest succeeds to liberate the slave. You've been listening to the 7th Avenue Project, and thanks to Andrea Monroe for her contributions to this week's show. I'm Robert Polly. I'll be back next week, Sunday at noon. ¶¶